Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. If you do a quick Google search of how many skin conditions exist, it's a few thousand, and they can affect people from all walks of life, from the most common to the rarest of the rare. Some are a born skin condition, some develop, and others are acquired instantly following a skin trauma or injury. Some skin conditions have no cure, so living with them is an ongoing learning experience for patients and families. And I'm very excited to announce for the first time in the Heal Thy Skin podcast, we will be opening our space to a very special collaboration series called the A to Z of Skin Conditions. The A to Z of Skin Conditions special series is hosted by Dr. Anika Smith, board certified dermatologist, and it features skin experts from all around the globe to give insights on everything we need to know in skin anatomy and skin conditions from A to Z. These episodes will be dropping periodically, so make sure you tune in to every single episode so you don't miss one. This is episode number two of the A to Z podcast series. The aim of the A to Z series is to provide you bite-sized pieces of dermatology wisdom shared by leaders in their field in order to educate, dispel myths and encourage greater understanding about all things to do with the skin. Today we will be taking a short, sharp and focused insight into boils and hydradenitis suppurativa with five key questions to be answered by our dermatology expert. This podcast presents information of a general nature and the opinions of the presenters and does not constitute formal medical review or advice. Please see your local doctor or dermatologist if you have any concerns about your skin or general health. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Anika Smith, consultant dermatologist. I'm delighted to welcome dermatologist and associate professor Dr. Erin McMenamin to the podcast today. Associate Professor McMenamin is a consultant dermatologist in Brisbane, Australia. She has a special interest in inflammatory skin disease, including autoimmune and autoinflammatory skin disease. And she's established Queensland's first multidisciplinary clinic for hydradenitis suppurativa. Her interests also extend to the skin cancer realm, having completed her PhD in melanoma. She has also engaged in work on skin diseases in Indigenous populations and conducts outreach clinics in Indigenous communities in Australia. Welcome, Erin. It's an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest on the podcast today to talk about all things to do with boils. Before we get started, can you tell us what you put on your skin this morning? Well, this is a good day for you to have asked me because I was lucky enough this morning to go for an ocean swim. So apart from my regular working day where I wouldn't have fit that in, so I put some 50-plus sunscreen on this morning before going out into the ocean. And since having a shower, I've used my morning facial moisturiser. 
brilliant. Lucky you to be able to commence the day with an ocean swim. I'm a tad jealous, but I'm so pleased to see the 50 plus got a look in there. Can you also tell us what it is you love most about the skin? I love my job as a skin doctor, particularly because it's a very visual specialty and also because we have the great fortune in that we can usually fix our patients and help them a great deal with our treatment. So I love the fact that most of our patients end up very satisfied with the treatment that we can offer. You know, when it comes to things like skin cancer, even most of the time with a simple excision or even a superficial topical cream treatment, we can give the patient a great success rate, which is really satisfying and uh, is good for the patients and for us as treating doctors. I completely agree. Now, let's get down to business and tackle the topic of boils. Can you tell us in simple terms, what are boils and what do they do to? Yeah, really simple terms. These are a really common condition and many patients listening would have at some time in their life had what started as a pimple and then went on to become something that was bigger and more painful. So a boil is basically similar principle to your average pimple, but has become larger Often it's got a secondary bacterial infection, which will make it hotter and larger and brighter red, and it becomes very painful. So pain's a real feature of these. But they start with a blockage to the follicle opening and then a secondary inflammatory response, which makes it larger and that causes the heat and pain. And then the secondary infection is often what causes a lot of that pus. So in larger boils, if anyone listening has had them, sometimes you've got to have them lanced open to release that pressure and that pus. Uh, And that inflammatory response can take days to sometimes weeks to settle if the patient doesn't get appropriate treatment. Got it. Now, often women and men, for that matter, will present and think that their boil has been triggered by frictional or mechanical trauma to the skin. Are there any common offenders on that front? Yeah, definitely hair removal can often trigger boils and that can be because you're more likely to get an ingrown hair or irritation to the skin surface which allows normal skin bacteria to get down into those follicles. So it can be triggered by things like heat, friction, not washing of clothing like active wear appropriately or by blockage due to the hair removal practices. It can also then be related to other underlying diseases or infections. So some people harbour more staph on their skin than others and that can be a more virulent or aggressive strain of staph. So it's important that boils are investigated from that perspective and other conditions such as diabetes can make patients more likely to be getting recurrent infections. So I'd say if it's becoming something that's more than once, it's certainly important that a person gets checked for those underlying causes and then we can address some of those triggers that might be leading to them getting repeated boils and skin infections. Now, you mentioned that occasionally they might require antibiotic therapy or indeed need to be lanced or incised and drained. Are there any other treatments we need to be aware of or anything else people can do to prevent boils? And you have already briefly touched on this. Yeah, we would often, if someone's getting repeated simple boils, we would look at those triggering factors to minimise them, look at shaving or hair removal practices to be minimising those ingrown hairs, minimising old razors spreading staph amongst a patient's skin. We'd also look to see whether they're harbouring staph in their nose. In patients where those factors are identified, they may be suggested to start antibacterial washes to reduce the load of staph on their skin. You can't get rid of it forever, of course, but washes such as Pfizer Hex or Chlorhexidine 
clean wash can reduce the load of bacteria on the person's skin. And it's important sometimes to do eradication of uh, what has been found to be the source of staph in many cases in patients' noses. So your doctor may suggest that you use ointments up your nose and indeed sometimes for every member of your household because they've found it often gets spread between household members or um, things like football teams or dormitories. Sometimes everyone that you're around needs to be treated as well if there's starting to be an outbreak in a small population. Perfect. You've already mentioned that recurrent boils require you know, medical review and we know that recurrent boils in certain locations of the body, the skin folds in particular, may indicate a certain underlying chronic inflammatory skin disease that we refer to as hydradenitis suppurativa, otherwise known as acne inversa or acne of the skin folds. Can you tell us a little bit about this disorder? I know this, this, this area is a special interest of yours. So what it is, how people get it and what the risk factors might be. Yeah, I certainly think that this condition has been historically very much underdiagnosed and that has led to a lot of prolonged suffering for patients with this hydradenitis suppurativa or HS condition. Acne inversa probably would have been a better name because the name HS infers it's something to do with the sweat glands, which in fact it has nothing to do with. This condition is sort of like boils but taking on a whole new life and it starts with follicular occlusion and that secondary inflammatory response. But unfortunately in patients with HS, they go on to have chronic boils, repeated episodes, so more than three a year is a trigger that perhaps you have something more than simple boils and especially if your boils are growing under the skin. So what happens in HS is patients get such a massive inflammatory response from their own immune system to what started perhaps as a simple boil that the uh, boil ruptures under the skin and then starts to grow into what develops those sinus tracts or scarring. And once it's at that point, it's very hard to undo that damage and it's very hard to fix that condition with a simple week of antibiotics. However, many patients who we now have, have HS have suffered for many years going to doctors, going to emergency departments and being treated as simple boils. So those flags of things growing under the skin of getting more than three episodes a year, we're hoping in time there'll be better awareness of that condition and patients won't go on to suffer for so many years without a diagnosis and without correct treatment because that condition has to be treated, as you know, in quite a different way to just mm -hmm. a simple boil. We know that a lot of these chronic inflammatory skin diseases are a kind of a complex interplay of genetics and, and environmental risk factors as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that with respect to hydradenitis suppurativa in terms of risk factors for, for its um, onset? Yeah, um, so in about 50% of patients with hydradenitis suppurativa there is a, fa a strong family history. So we know that there are already some discovered genetic links to the condition. And it's probably similar to other inflammatory skin conditions like psoriasis uh, and like lupus, where we know patients have a genetic predisposition or vulnerability. And then possibly there are some other exposures in their life that trigger off their immune system to become hyperactive. So this is not a condition that is primarily caused by infection. It's not a condition that's contagious to anyone around you. Uh, so it's this inflammatory response. I explained to patients it's sort of like psoriasis, which is plaques on the outside of the skin, but in HS it's causing massive amounts of inflammation under the skin. So certain triggers we know of, the most strong trigger is smoking. Uh, 
And so if you're a smoker, you're 15 times more likely to get HS. Uh, and in my clinic, I certainly see patients that are smokers will have more severe disease and be very difficult to treat. Uh, obesity is reported as a trigger. Uh, but the worldwide study showed if you are obese, you're two times more likely. So you can see from the smoking being 15 times more likely, it's a much more important trigger. And we think somehow the smoking sets off the immune system to start this abnormal inflammatory cascade. Uh, other things such as antibacterial washes are suggested to patients with HS, but it's not primarily caused by infection. The infection will just be a secondary phenomenon that comes on. Um, certainly other um, inflammatory skin conditions and systemic inflammatory conditions can be also associated with HS. So we know patients are more likely to have uh, inflammation in their bowel and are at higher risk of inflammatory bowel disease. Also joint aches and pains and arthritis can be part of some syndromes associated with HS in really severe cases. Excellent. I think that's a really thorough overview. Broadly speaking, in terms of treatment for HS covering some of the general measures which you've already alluded to and then where medical and surgical treatments may come into play, can you give us a brief outline as to the treatment approach for this chronic debilitating disorder? Yeah, I think the most important thing in treating HS is understanding there's not one magic bullet that is going to cure your disease. And so in every patient that comes into our clinic, uh, they'll be given four or five different modalities to try to get the disease under control. Some of those things will be lifestyle and preventative things, such as doing everything we can to help them quit smoking if they're still smoking, the body washes, lifestyle things such as a healthy diet, um, regular exercise, so because heat and friction can sometimes trigger them, we suggest exercises that are more muscle building, more like the gym-based circuit workout to improve somebody's metabolism rather than going for a long jog because that sort of thing can flare the disease. Um, we also would try to address mental health and anxiety and depression um, and make sure those things are, are being helped by a patient's local psychologist, psychiatrist or GP because the disease itself and the pain that patients live in can have a really profound impact on their quality of life and their mental health. We then move on to cream treatments, which are um, antibacterial, antiseptic creams, and also uh, a cream that's a peeling drawing agent, which many patients find very helpful when they're getting a new nodule to try to get it to dry out and settle out down uh, and resolve rather than grow, rupture under the skin and turn into those chronic areas that can bother people for years in the one site. That's called resorcinol cream, which I've found very helpful in many patients. We also can use a range of oral tablets and they can be addressing the hormonal drive for this condition, particularly in women. And they're similar medications to what we'd use in hormonal acne for women. So a contraceptive pill or androgen blockers, uh, such as saproterone acetate or spironolactone in some women, probably about a third of women uh, who are particularly getting hormonal flares that can be helpful. Uh, Long-term antibiotics in some patients will help take the heat out of lesions and mean they're having fewer flares, but I don't find oral antibiotics usually completely take the condition away. Uh, we also then use uh, newer anti-inflammatory medications called biologics, which you may have spoken about in other disease processes here, but they are blocking one specific arm of the immune system. And in many patients, these have been profoundly helpful for reducing pain, reducing drainage of pus, and meaning the patient gets fewer flares. Again, that often won't completely fix all scar tissue. So these, you know, patients that are severe have had all a range of all the things I've just mentioned. And then surgery in areas that are 
chronic draining sinuses. Now, often patients have got the one area under their armpit that for eight years comes and goes and comes and goes and drains and really affects their day-to-day life and functioning. Uh, and in those cases, I find de-roofing surgery very helpful for turning that chronic painful draining area into a flat scar. Uh, and the healing process from that is significant, can take four to 12 weeks after the surgery to heal. Uh, but in most patients, and we've done over 80 cases now, it's been very helpful in those localised chronic areas. So it's a really a combined approach of all those things tailored to the individual and what each patient's wishes are and what which of those things that suits them and that they would like to proceed with. That was a fabulous overview. Going back to the point about oral antibiotics, I think patients, uh, clinicians in you know, interrelated disciplines, also GPs and pharmacists are somewhat at a loss to understand why we use antibiotics in the way that we do for chronic inflammatory skin disease, including HS. So I suppose a note to, to indicate that we often do use them, harness them for their anti-inflammatory effect and often use them at what we call sub-antimicrobial doses, but often for protracted periods of time. And as you probably know, a lot of patients have cycled through multiple GPs before they, they see and have tried various antibiotics, but often not for a sufficient length of time. And in order to access that special drug that you mentioned, it, it's a requirement that patients have been on two different types of antibiotics for a, a minimum three-month period um, for each. Yeah, absolutely. I agree completely. And there's a lot, you know, I think it's it's reasonable that the community is aware of the downsides of long-term antibiotics and, you know, change to the gut microbiome uh, and resistance. And I'm really aware of that and I'm very conscious of that in prescribing um, long-term antibiotics. But as you say, we're using it for its anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, and we're only using it in patients where the disease is making a significant impact on their quality of life and their social and psychological function. And so you've got to weigh up those risks with the impact on patients and it's not a perfect decision to use any of these medications but it's also not great to leave a young person you know suffering with pain and flares and not treating it so it it is a tough decision to use those long-term anti-inflammatory biologic agents or antibiotics but I think that's where your doctor should be able to weigh those up for you and then the patient can make their own choice about what they'd like to do. Yeah, I agree. On that note, do you suggest routinely when patients are committing to long-term antibiotic therapy for the per- purposes of their HS control uh, beyond typical you know, dietary changes that can be made to, to support the, the gut microbiome, do you routinely suggest that they also uh, be taking a, a probiotic during their antibiotic um, treatment? Yeah, certainly. I think the probiotics during that is a good idea. Um, the other thing is uh, we tend to uh, use antibiotics, of course, in this setting that are not as bad for resistance and are less likely used for treating separate infections. So, you know, we're usually using tetracyclines, which, of course, are better than having somebody on long-term uh, Keflex, for example. So we try to choose ones that are going to cause less of that issue. Uh, and certainly in people with localised disease, that's where I tend to favour approaches such as um, intralesional steroid injections or surgery because I think if you've just got two small chronic areas, it's much better to go through the surgical procedure and then start your preventative topical measures than be on constant antibiotics or immune suppression just trying to mask that inflammation and pain. Brilliant. What's on the horizon in terms of treatments for, for HS? What can HS sufferers look forward to in the years to come in terms of advances in the, in the therapeutic space? It is a really much, much better time to have HS right now than it was for the last 
decade uh, and before that, that's for sure. So there's huge interest from pharmaceutical companies around the world now that um, it has been mapped out as an inflammatory disease, auto-inflammatory disease. There are lots of work going on all around the world to find different molecules that will help block that inflammatory pathway. Uh, so there's repositioning of biologic agents that are currently approved for other indications and companies are now trialling them in HS, which is really exciting. And there are lots of projects going on around the world in phase two or even phase three studies looking at new molecules that will be anti-inflammatory and effective for HS. So I'm very excited and very hopeful that there'll be an increasing number of agents proven to be effective that we will hopefully get on the PBS in the near future in Australia. Now, finally, are there any additional comments you want to make about boils or HS for that matter before we before we close? Yeah, I guess my main interest, and I think it's great you're doing a podcast on this topic and uh, I support that with the hope that we increase awareness of the disease and that patients present earlier. So I've had so many heartbreaking stories of people who've spent years uh, being told to go home and wash more, given five days of antibiotics, and the disease wasn't well known about and doctors weren't taught about it. So uh, I know dermatologists around the country are teaching in medical schools trying to raise awareness of this disease because if we catch it early, we can do all those things I just spoke about, give patients things they can do at home themselves when they get a new nodule, treat it early if the chronic sinus is starting to develop. And I hope the next wave of patients developing this disease won't suffer through their life without active treatments and without support um, for their disease. So I've certainly um, I hope that we get better and better at early diagnosis and early intervention to try to stop those long-term um, negative impacts that the disease has had historically on patients' lives. I agree entirely. It, uh, HS has a huge impact on quality of life for those that suffer with it and early diagnosis and, as you say, improving you know education and, and recognition of, of the, the disease amongst um, GPs and other related health professionals is certainly is certainly key. Thank you for your insights, Erin. You've been sharp, succinct, and definitely on point. I want to know if there are any additional resources for patients with HS that you would like to mention and where listeners can go to find out more about your work that you do in the space and where it is you run your HS clinic. Yeah, that is an interesting point in that I um, we've been asking patients in a, a study that we're running about some um, how they found the internet helped them because I know as doctors you're often kind of, oh, Google doctor, it's a nightmare, patients are getting all, you know, a lot of misinformation. But mm. I would say in HS I have found the internet has been actually a really amazing resource for patients often just to diagnose themselves. So there are many patients I've spoken to who after 15 years with the condition were Google searching boils, abscesses, what can I do, and stumbled across pictures and went, hey, that's what my groin looks like. Maybe I have that condition. And I get lots of referrals now where the patient has gone into the GP for the first time seeing someone saying, I think I have HS. Can you refer me to a specialist? Because patients have often been really ashamed and embarrassed and it's not something that I think they often even speak with their family members or friends about. And so it's there's been this shame has kept it quiet, but I think the, the advantage of the internet platforms are that people have been able to share stories. There's some great Facebook support groups patients have told me about where they'll you know, sometimes get information that's not so helpful, like a lot of the dietary stuff uh, I think is not well proven. Um, avoiding nightshades, vegetables, a few patients have tried based on Facebook advice and it hasn't helped them. Um, 
but I think there's been a lot of support and just nice to know you're not the only one suffering with it. Um, so they've sort of found online friends and support. Um, so I would suggest people finding those Facebook groups. Of course, you've just always got to take with a grain of salt. There's a whole range of personalities. I've had a few patients sort of, um, you know, get advice that has then uh, not been so helpful in my opinion, but I think overall it is a really positive thing. There's a HS um, associations and foundations that have got online resources and some of the uh, companies involved in treating this condition have got some online resources that explain the condition well. Um, my clinic is set up in private and in public practice. I'm at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane where we've got uh, an MDT with an excellent plastic surgical team and colorectal surgeons who are supportive, particularly in our major large surgical cases. I wish that I had a psychologist and a dietitian and an exercise physiologist um, and an infectious disease physician. So I, my hope for the future is we'd have seven or eight um, professionals all together to come at this from lots of different angles. But um, we're hoping with time and better evidence we'll be able to petition the government to get better services because I do think patients with this condition, in my opinion, have really missed out. There's a lot of funding that goes to a lot of other diseases um, and I really think that HS as a disease deserves a lot more funding and interest and I, I hope that's coming in, in the coming years. Couldn't agree more. Just a quick note before we finish, you mentioned diet and I wanted to know, I mean, the Mediterranean diet is touted for its anti-inflammatory properties um, and, you know, for chronic inflammatory skin disease and we know that a low glycemic index diet has potentially has benefit in patients with acne. Do you routinely suggest incorporating either low GI Mediterranean for your patients for, with, with HS? Yeah, I um, I go along the lines of the best evidence we have out there is in acne. Uh, and having said that, there are studies that will say significantly affected or not, but reasonable evidence for acne that high sugar, high fat, and in some patients, dairy will flare the inflammation in their skin. Uh, there are some studies that have looked particularly at HS, but unfortunately, so far, despite um, the last study I read was interviewing a couple of thousand patients with HS, they couldn't find any common links. So about a third of patients reported high fat, high sugar, alcohol, uh, and dairy, but then, you know, the other two thirds of patients didn't find them helpful. And then again, as you mentioned, the Mediterranean diet, some patients will find really helpful. And then the next patient will say, I tried that. It didn't help. So in someone who's motivated or interested, they're the suggestions that I give generally eating more whole foods. Like I, I think, um, we're not yet sure what all the chemicals in processed foods do to our body and could they incite our immune system so i think that mediterranean diet to me is a lot of whole foods in their natural form the way our bodies were meant to process food uh, as opposed to highly processed and packaged foods which of course are high fat and sugar and have often got a lot of chemicals that we we just don't know if smoking can incite the inflammatory cascade in our body we don't know what some of these other chemicals could do to someone prone to um, particularly inflammatory processes so they're my sort of diet um, suggestions and I, you know, suggest people try it for three months and see if they find it works for them uh, and it's a very individual response thing it seems. There's not one rule that will fit everybody. Uh, there's also some evidence for oral zinc, um, so making sure you have a healthy diet with fruit and vegetables and fresh fresh meat. Um, if you're interested, zinc supplementation has some reasonable evidence, but a lot of the time that's in case series, which, as you know, is um, doesn't always translate to the real world or to a randomised control trial. Excellent, Erin. Uh, so informative. To finish, we have a few short rapid fire questions. So firstly, what your top key takeaways are from today's podcast that you would like our listeners to walk away with? 
I'd like increased awareness of it and to reduce the embarrassment and, and shame of it. It's just, to me, you should, it's like having psoriasis. People should talk about it, be willing to tell their friends and family and go and see a doctor and ask for better help. Excellent. What's one thing in your opinion all women or indeed men who may be listening should do for their skin health? Oh, definitely sun cream. I know it's a boring message from dermatologists, but um, gee, it makes such a difference, doesn't it? When you, when I do a full skin check on, say, two 40-year-old women in the one day, the one who has sun protected their skin is just um, amazing, the skin health compared to someone who has gone out and enjoyed too much sun without protection through their teens and 20s and 30s. So that is absolutely my number one tip. Couldn't agree more. And what will you put on your skin tonight? You know, I don't use night cream. God, I don't know if I'm going against the grain of dermatologists here, but um, yeah, maybe maybe because I've got oilier skin. But yeah, no, I well, at night there's no cream. Um, I like it in the morning. It's yes, simple. Yeah. it's simple. Yeah. It's fabulous. Night. Yes, perfect. Um, and finally, your favourite quote or motto that you live by, if one can come to mind. Oh, favourite, you know, <laughs> it's you can do it. I love it. You can that do it. That got me through my exams, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise. As I said at the start of this, you truly are a wonder woman and can continue to do great things in the dermatology space. We're really lucky to have you and your valuable contribution to the space. So thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It's a great thing you're doing here.